Danny Haifong, thank you so much for coming on Media Roots Radio. I appreciate you having me, Abby. Thank you. So you and Roberto Servant uh, just released a book entitled American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror, which provides a decolonized framework to kind of reanalyze the most significant events in American history that have shaped our world today. Now, fake news defined under Trump is pretty fascinating because here we are oscillating between these dueling narratives of the right-wing punditry putting out, you know, racist, Islamophobic, anti-leftist news that's fear-based, hyperbolic, and a lot of times blatantly false. But then you have the liberal wing of the establishment press putting out fake news with equal fervor, right? Under the guise of intellectualism. Um, this is many times dangerous war propaganda, whether it be neo-McCarthyist accusations that every social movement and anti-imperialist leftist are useful idiots for the Kremlin, or just the continued legitimization of capitalism and imperialism. So given how much we hear the term fake news being thrown around today, can you give us a definition of what you consider fake news and why you felt it was important to put together what you call a people's account of its history? Yes, that's a great question. So the book that we sought to write uh, about fake news was one that focused on more useful definition for those of us who are struggling right now to move beyond the two-party corporate duopolies debate about what fake news is. Because as you said, Abby, on the one hand, the right wing demonizes the left and also clumps the radical left, the grassroots left, the revolutionaries and people struggling on the ground uh, for real power and real justice with corporate liberals and corporate Democrats. Well, on the other side, the corporate Democratic Party is seeking to lump us, people like us, anti-war, anti-imperialist uh, revolutionaries with the, the right wing and equate us with Trump. And so we felt it was very important to understand that the roots of the United States as being cemented in settler colonialism and capitalism and imperialism uh, is really where this whole fake news debate uh, arises from. And so we wanted to talk about what the critical questions of the day are right now um, in order to penetrate and pierce through this complete silence that both corporate parties, the corporate media, and all the institutions of power under U.S. imperialism, uh, this silence over what the real principal contradictions and issues and problems that are affecting our lives, that are affecting the lives of working class people, that are affecting the lives of people who are under attack by a racialized regime of terror, a terror uh, an empire. And uh, we thought that this narrative, this debate about fake news that uh, really uh, f heated up under the Trump administration and the Trump regime and the 2016 election has taken us so far away from real conversations about white supremacy, about empire and about capitalism. And we wanted to bring it back to that and to understand that fake news is a historical problem that really lays at the feet of the ruling class of the United States and its allies, which need to promote narratives of exceptionalism and innocence and blatant lies in order to justify the terror, the de uh, dep depraved conditions, the economic exploitation, and the poverty and the lack of power 
that so many around the world and in the United States are feeling right now. Absolutely. I mean, I just saw Soledad O'Brien, you know, commenting on how Bernie Sanders is talking about corporate media and kind of reanalyzing, you know, this corporate media hegemony that we've seen obviously consolidate over the last couple of decades. Um, and, and she was like, great, another candidate who's criticizing the media and attacking the media. It's like, no, this is necessary. This is why the fake news mantra had steam in the beginning, because people are realizing that this media construct does not represent you know, working class people in this country, revolutionaries and people who are opposed to this kind of bi- bipartisan foreign policy consensus. Exactly. And, you know, one will never find, like in our book, one will never find narratives and news coverage and analyses of how the United States is still at war with uh, the DPRK and in Korea generally. <laughs> there has never been a peace treaty signed, but yet that issue is always framed as either A, Trump being completely crazy and stupid for wanting to just talk to the leader of the DPRK or on the other hand we're talking about how depraved the leader of the DPRK is how savage he is and how inhumane he is and how uh, the United States must continue its military presence there in order to foster democracy and that you know we can go on and on and on and we do in our book and we talk about different issues and instances that are so relevant to our lives right now whether that's in the continued militarization of the police, which gets no coverage in the corporate media, uh, or whether it's just really analyzing what Russiagate was all about, mm-hmm. what the roots of it were uh, really seeking to do to uh, the growing sentiments in the U.S. where working class people are seeking alternatives. They want to see a change in their lives, but yet the corporate media decided to harness this Russiagate narrative in order to forward its foreign policy objectives to uh, foment and intensify the war drive against Russia that the U.S. has been drooling over for over a century, and as well to distract from the real inherent uh, unity that is involved in the two-party corporate duopoly, how the Democratic Party has been an agent of oppression and an agent of uh, racist terror and an agent of empire just as much as the Republican Party in its own way. And so that is being more and more revealed as the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, picks up steam and millions of people uh, become enamored by ideas like Medicare for all. But we still have this problem where the Democratic Party is uh, being legitimized still. And Mm -hmm. we wanted to provide a narrative where Uh, in an analysis of how the Democratic Party is not going to be the vehicle that transforms the United States. Uh, Actually, the Democratic Party is more likely, as we saw in 2016, to decapitate even the most modest of social democratic um, reforms, reform movements that Sanders represents. Your book uses the, the term fake news, which is actually, you know, which has obviously become quite popular after Trump got elected. But there's been some debate recently, and this is not my main question, but I wanted you to comment on this also, but there's been some debate recently about where the term originated from. BuzzFeed recently took credit for originating the term in an article, which apparently made it into Obama's lap like right before he left office, you know, in his last few weeks at the White House that he, you know, thought was a really important article that BuzzFeed wrote. Norm MacDonald used to say, this is the fake news on Saturday Night Live. So obviously this term has sort of been used in the in popular lexicon for a while. 
But what's interesting to me about your book is you, in the title, you know, you start at the Revolutionary War, you or you go all the way back to that time period. And if you go all the way back to that time period, I'm personally really curious, what are some really striking historical examples of elements of the ruling class using fake news to manipulate people. Before you answer that, one just one main one that comes to my mind that, you know, I, I think we were even all taught in school, American public schools, was the Remember the Main incident by, you know, Hearst's uh, newspaper publications at the time that was, and that's referred to as yellow journalism. So I'm wondering, is there a difference between that concept of yellow journalism and the way that it was sort of talked about back then, and that is a historical example? Is it something different from the way that fake news was used back then? And what are some other, in your mind, crazy or noteworthy historical examples pre the Spanish-American War, and even before that, like the Revolutionary War period. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about that. I think the main one that we focus on in the book it has to do with the fact that, and how we define fake news is less uh, focused on the journalistic aspect of it in, the, uh, in that sense, and more in how the ruling class uh, promotes lies, whether that's through the media or whether it's through its political leaders, whether it's through its economic uh, ruling class, uh, to promote these lies that ultimately help shape the terrain from which uh, people in contending classes end up uh, understanding their society, this concept of hegemony uh, that Gramsci talked about. And we really look at in the book how uh, one of the biggest uh, myths, one of the biggest lies of American exceptionalism, one of the biggest um, uh, pieces of fake news that we've been fed is that the American Revolution was a progressive development. We really challenged this notion that the American Revolution represented a step toward freedom and democracy rather than a step back. And the great research of Gerald Horn and others have shown actually that the ruling class, the founding fathers, as uh, schools, public schools talk about them and the corporate media and everyone else, this glorified uh, group of slave owners and slave traders and inheritors of, of colonized land, they ended up uh, actually waging this rebellion for a republic um, free from the British crown's influence, not because they were looking to free themselves from oppression, but actually because London at the time was facing multitudes of crises, both uh, with its uh, colonies in the Caribbean, as well as domestically, where there was sentiment that the slave trade, even among capitalists at this time in, in London, that slavery, the slave trade especially, was becoming a very costly venture, that it actually took a lot of money and a lot of manpower to maintain in so many different places, whether we're talking about Antigua, Jamaica, um, and the mainland colonies. And so there was this movement to curb it back. And um, unfortunately for the founding fathers and the ruling class in the United States, the or what would become the United States, the entire economic basis of the mainland colonies was rooted in slavery. And so it was also rooted in the dehumanization of Africans. And so when the British crown sought to roll back the slave trade and impose taxes, they did it through the arming of African slaves. They actually freed Africans, let them uh, integrate into the military in order to 
in order to smooth over some of those harsh contradictions that occur when you run a colonial system based on um, white slave, based on white uh, enslaved, the enslavement of black Africans by whites. Uh, so this angered the ruling class, this angered people like George Washington, this angered uh, the elites. They believed that they were being enslaved by the British crown and they wanted to free themselves from any uh, accountability around the notion of slavery. So really what the American Revolution was, was a movement to preserve the slave trade and to preserve the institution of slavery, which um, amassed profits uh, not before seen in history up until that point for the ruling elites in the mainland colonies, many of whom actually migrated from places like Cuba and the Caribbean um, to escape slave rebellions. So these are things that aren't talked about in the fake news around the uh, American Revolution as being a progressive development, but something we focus on a lot um, as being indicative of a lot of developments and so impactful to how we talk about history today. I mean, we we see plays like Hamilton, for example, just glorify the founding fathers as something to redeem, as a redeemable uh, uh, group of people who, who could represent freedom so long as they integrate uh, certain elements of society into that project rather than understanding that project is uh, unjust from the beginning very interesting yeah and that and that mural i don't know have you heard about that mural in san francisco that sort of depicted george washington as a, a brutal slave owner where there was <laughs> where there was all this debate about whether it should be taken down or not do you know did you guys know what i'm talking about yeah, yes. yeah. What, what, what? Do you have a comment on that? Because I don't really know much about it or the artist, but like that sort of, um, that I feel like that kind of went under the radar. Like, what did you think about that? The way that was sort of treated in the press. I thought it was heinous, and it shows uh, what we talk about in the book a lot, which is this uh, very insidious narrative of uh, the politics of inclusion, and it's a it's a ruling class narrative. It's a narrative that is really dominated by Wall Street and the banks and the academic institutions that profit so much from them. And basically, uh, it, in my opinion, what happened in San Francisco with the mural was uh, just a gross injustice and an example of how the politics of inclusion, this idea that uh, certain groups uh, can't be offended uh, and can't uh, and must be integrated into the ruling system, has distorted our understanding of what re real justice is. Because really what happened was uh, San the San Francisco, the school district in San Francisco that took it down, did so on the basis that it was creating an unsafe environment. This painting, which was created during the Progress Administration era by a communist um, that depicted George Washington as what he actually was, uh, as a colonizer, someone who uh, literally it was his job to... Um, steal land from indigenous people. That was his jump for a very long time. And for doing that, this painting came under fire as something that was creating an unsafe environment in the schools. And the definition of safety was supposedly uh, one that protected uh, vulnerable groups in the schools. But really what it did, it was it protected the political correctness of this liberal elite who believes that uh, real narratives and real discussions and debates about these questions are anathema to their power and to their privilege and their status. 
Let's talk about settler colonialism. Uh, your book correctly states that it's often boxed into this narrow category of history, right? The colonial era, instead of being viewed as an enduring structure and development of, of the American way of life. I mean, it's seen as an event that is past, which is why you kind of have this notion, well, we had nothing to do with slavery. We had nothing to do with segregation. You know, we've moved on. I mean, what's your response to the kind of right-wing notion that everything from mass incarceration to slavery to the extreme inequality that disproportionately affects people of color in this country are products of people's own individual choices and not the systemic roots that you address? The narrative, it's a neoliberal narrative. It's a narrative that uh, is really all about justifying empire. And it's one that uh, both political parties, the entire ruling establishment in the United States, has harnessed and um, grabbed onto, especially over the last four decades, where after uh, struggles uh, waged by the working class, waged by black America, these revolutionary struggles, uh, radical struggles, as well as um, struggles just for democratic rights. Um, these struggles really pushed the envelope and uh, forced reforms in U.S. society, which uh, prompted the elites to respond in kind. And really, uh, the whitewashing of the issue of settler colonialism, the issue of the racist roots of U.S. society is something that's participated um, that's participated in by both establishment parties. So the Republican Party, uh, they will uh, really push that individual rights, that individualism, the notion that uh, the neoliberal notion that everyone is to blame for their condition and that because of all the reforms that have happened um, over the course of the centuries, that in fact uh, there is an even playing field and that it must mm -hmm. be an inherent uh, problem with you or an inherent problem with a particular group, a cultural problem. I mean, people like Charles Murray and others really promoted this idea of this cultural backwardness of black people, for example, is why uh, unemployment is so high in black communities. Um, and then we can look at how uh, the corporate liberal class does the same thing. They um, ultimately promote this idea of inclusion and um, they pander to the ideas of racial equality while at the same time uh, stating that, in fact, the very institutions that built slavery, that uh, continue to dispossess indigenous people from their lands and keep them away from their lands, the same institutions that ensure that the 2.3 million people in prison, that 40% of them are uh, black Americans, that this system of oppression totally is, in fact, one that is redeemable and reformable and something that can become more perfect like the founding fathers who created this system in the first place envisioned. And that, to me, is even a more insidious myth because what it does is it gets especially leftists and people who believe in social justice and who want to fight for social justice, it gets them believing that there is this innocuous vision of democracy uh, that existed at one point, but yet we can never quite define it because we're always battling with the contradiction between the rhetoric and the reality of the U.S. way of life, which is rooted in imperialism and racism and settler sure. colonialism. And your book goes into 
a lot of detail about how American exceptionalism is a weapon and it's being wielded to protect very, very specific interests. So I guess, why did you choose to do a case study on the notions of American exceptionalism and American innocence together? And this is the sort of Sam Harris argument, right? <laughs> that we are yeah, a like benign <laughs> empire that has good intentions. Therefore, our atrocities are always justified um, because we meant well. Yes, uh, and we decided to, to focus on this. Roberto Servent reached out to me. I guess he had been reading my work on Black Agenda Report uh, for a couple of years. And it was a topic that I had been writing about quite often, especially at the height of the election of 2016 for those you know, two years, election seasons in the United States, presidential election seasons are so maddeningly long. I mean, they're just, they last so long. So there's often a lot to write about. And when election seasons roll around, especially presidential elections, these narratives go into overdrive because the entire ruling class, uh, the corporate elite, the capitalists, they are uh, looking to push the narratives of exceptionalism and innocence down the throats of the masses in order for them to obey and be obedient voters um, for the particular parties that they uh, are told sh they should support that are in their interests. And really what American exceptionalism and innocence do is they create a universal narrative that belies and mystifies class contradictions and inequalities and the social forces in the United States, um, which are really antagonisms at this point, right? The the white supremacy and the capitalist exploitation, which is causing just a steep decline in conditions for everybody, and except for the very rich. And uh, we decided to focus on this narrative, uh, these narratives of exceptionalism and innocence, because we felt that there is this left swing, so to speak, that's happening mainly in the electoral arena, but it has its roots in grassroots phenomenon, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy Wall Street movement, that these movements show that there was this break with the consensus of um, the ruling elite over the, the way we understand race, the way we understand class, and that in 2016, that took an electoral character. And our hope was that uh, these millions of people, mostly young people, young workers, uh, people who are being th thrusted into these low-wage jobs, right? 90% uh, of jobs created under Obama were uh, low-wage and temporary jobs. Uh, the, this massive unemployment problem, which is constantly mystified by ridiculous measurements of, uh, of that statistic, and the fact that the... Democratic Party has now become the engine of American exceptionalism. It is the war party. It is the party that now has shifted so far to the right that it has actually created a team of neocons and neoliberal political figures, uh, intelligence apparatus, um, careerists, that this team of oligarchs that it's comprised has actually stolen a lot of the narrative away from the Republican Party about American exceptionalism. And that's kind of what led to Trump, really, is that Trump was a phenomenon, a development of this political vacuum, which is now consuming the political system in the United States, that Trump arose out of conditions where the Republican Party was pushed so far to the right that Donald Trump 
uh, was able to knock over all of the bowling pins in the Republican uh, National Convention and take take the party and then take the White House because the Democratic Party had effectively become what the Republicans were 30, 40 years ago, party of neoliberalism, a party of um, complete austerity and endless war. Right. And so we felt it was so important to not only talk about that, but also talk about where this came from. How did this occur? Why has U.S. imperialism gone so far to the right? Why are these contradictions sharpening? What historical roots are uh, really uh, must be understood in order to move beyond this because we won't elect our way out of this crisis. We won't elect our way out of the endless austerity, the neoliberal plunder of workers at home and abroad. We won't elect our way out of uh, racist police terror and mass incarceration. And we certainly won't elect our way out of endless wars where the U.S. military cares not who is in the White House. They make it work because they have the power to influence the state and they are the state and so how do we begin to understand those relationships of power so we can understand uh and formulate a new vision of power that is about people power and it's about the power to determine the relate the the future of humanity and the future of our society so we can begin to address these problems elect we won't elect our way out of this and I think that our book helps uh, push us more in that direction as we struggle with these contradictions in, in, in the 2020 election and beyond. Right. I, lo- I like that you kind of have this unequivocal call that we need to resurrect the anti-war movement in this country. I mean, I couldn't agree more, Danny, as an internationalist, as someone whose empathy extends beyond the borders of my country and who understands this violence that's externalized um, by my government. It's, it's kind of... Conf- it's kind of confusing to me that other people don't really acknowledge this. Um, let's start by breaking down some of these myths, I mean, that your book deconstructs that underpin American exceptionalism and American innocence. I guess starting with the greatest one that we're living in right now, which is the George Bush mantra, why do they hate us? Going to William Bloom, they hate us because we kill them. Um, there seems to be this huge disconnect today, 19 years after this perpetual war on terror was launched, trillions of dollars squandered, countries destabilized, millions of lives lost or forever destroyed. I mean, terrorism has been compounded exponentially as a result of this. So can you talk about this foundational myth of the war on terror and how U.S. policy has played the greatest role in terrorism? <laughs> Of course, it, it's so critical, even as the war on terror seems to be a more uh, sidelined uh, narrative, that there has been this interesting way that this policy has lost legitimacy, especially in the wake of Russiagate. But it still f- really forms the root of all U.S. policies. Uh, and now there's just a lot of silence about it. So the the real logic of the war on terror was a racial logic it was a racist logic it was a logic of white terror it was the idea that the empire the u.s empire was under attack itself which is ridiculous because there have been many scholars who have shown that actually the u.s as it built its empire over the course of the centuries has actually never been under threat from any world power whether we talk about the cold war or we talk about um before then there hasn't really been a time in U.S. history, World War II especially, being one of the most mythologized uh, wars in the history uh, of all wars, 
Um, so the war on terror created this fear of the other, this fear of Arabs, this fear of, um, of people who practice the Islamic faith. The war on terror really uh, stoked the flames of repression. Uh, what we saw was the uh, intensification of domestic repression. We saw the massive surveillance state that was built to collect all of our data through the intelligence apparatus and as well as a heightened police state where uh, not only were black people and uh, people of color uh, terrorized to an even greater degree and uh, people who practice Islam, Muslims, they were followed, especially in New York City, uh, hundreds in prison. And to this day, there is this um, black identity extremist program that's all about fighting the terror, terrorism, so-called terrorism of black activists. And so the war on terror shaped the domestic infrastructure of the police state, as well as justified the massive expansion of the war machine abroad, not only the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, but uh, uh, former General Wesley Clark of NATO showed us that actually there were seven countries on the hit list, and we've seen all seven of those nations, Somalia, Iran, Syria, Libya, and the rest, uh, come under the gun of U.S. imperial invasion, proxy wars, etc. And so uh, the war on terror has been so instrumental because that, fe that fear of the other that George W. Bush invoked and that really every, uh, Barack Obama did the same thing, this fear of the other uh, helped obfuscate uh, both of those developments. But what's really ironic about it, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, is that, in fact, the U.S. had been stoking terrorism in that region for decades. And to this day, whether we're talking about the destruction of Libya and the, the war, war against, ongoing war against Syria, these same forces, al-Qaeda, uh, the what, Lib Libyan is the Islamic fighting group, the Jabal Nusra, we can go down the line of all the so-called Al-Qaeda affiliates that exist in the region at large in the Middle East, North Africa, and the U.S.'s influence, its stamp, its involvement is very clear. What's interesting about the narrative of the war on terror is that the fear of the other was actually something that the U.S. was materializing abroad and using, then using those forces, those so-called uh, terrorist forces, to not only label an entire people uh, criminal, but then to criminalize the entire population. <laughs> we saw the Obama administration pass the 2012 NDAA, where he said that the military had the right to arrest and detain uh, citizens in the United States without uh, any trial and without any accusation, without any charge. So this has become, this war on terror has become so dangerous. It's become such a valuable narrative and it's such a valuable tool in this American exceptionalist ideology for ensuring that the majority of people in the United States will sign on to wars or will ignore them because there is such a loud and cacophonous uh, drive to dehumanize large sections of the world, really, um, for the aims of U U.S. imperialism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the war on terror and, you know, the foundational myths behind it they're they're so strong and i think that you you're really hitting on something which is sort of the racist programming that's fundamental to how that myth has propelled so well and i feel that 
one of the biggest examples of that was when they showed footage of Palestinians allegedly celebrating the 9-11 attacks at like 11 in the morning on the day of 9-11. And if you watch the actual Howard Stern broadcast of this, you can see the direct reaction to him and his staff to this footage. And they it's like the bloodthirst and the vitriol and the racism is just like explodes out of them, like live on the air when they're watching this footage. And it, I, I, I feel that that was such a powerful, uh, toxic image, you know, to broadcast to people that that, you know, that set Americans on this sort of path for war and, and the thirst for basically the blood of brown people in the Middle East. And obviously the Bush administration helped reinforce that um, and continued to for years. Uh, Robbie, what does he say? Does he just say like fucking kill them all or something? Like I forget what Howard Stern says. When oh, he says um, we should, I think he should have said we should drop the nuclear bomb on them right now. <laughs> he like screams Wow. Out. I mean, he says worse things too, but I think that was a that was indicative of a lot of people watching that footage, and I think that was what that footage was designed to do. It was it was designed to dehumanize and otherize, um, to in, in a really damaging way. I mean, touching back on World War II, though, I wanted to mention the dropping of the nuclear bomb, or I should say, bombs in Japan, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. One of the biggest myths of all, actually, because it cemented the U.S. as the world's superpower and dominant empire until today. I mean, there were so many other atrocities that we committed in World War II that we just don't really talk about. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut is sort of responsible for popularizing and shedding light on the American atrocities we committed uh, during the aerial bombings of Dresden, for example, in Germany. But there really, there's really not very much discussion about that it's still i feel like even some leftists i encounter actually will have sort of a indiana jones prism of world war ii um rather than like a more truthful actual nuanced uh, you know a prism that shows what american empire was really striving to do in that conflict as well yes definitely i remember talking to david swanson about this and uh we talked about how World War II is the most difficult war to talk about that the U.S. was involved when at, involved in as an imperial power, as already an ascended p- imperial power, not the uh, most powerful imperialist nation at that time, but it came out of the World War II as the most dominant empire that had. Um, ever before been uh, developed. And so we we really tried in our book to highlight some important facts about World War II. I mean, one of the most important facts about World War II that you'll never hear is that, in fact, the United States was not in, uh, did not join the war to defeat fascism. What it joined the war to do was to boost its military industrial complex, which it had already been doing with uh, Nazi Germany, with the Axis powers, with um, it was playing both sides of the war for a time. But when Germany decided to the U.S.'s European friends, the U.S. decided that it was actually more economically feasible to boost the U.K.'s, uh, at that time, Great Britain, the British Empire's flailing military uh, and to move away from Germany, because what the Nazis did was, in fact, 
uh, challenge European rule, not just what the U.S. ruling class and people like uh, Henry Ford and others had hoped all along, which was that uh, the fighting between the Soviet Union and Germany would lead to the destruction of both, but more, more so the Soviet Union. And what's never talked about is that the Soviet Union, in fact, sacrificed over 20 million people um, in order to defeat fascism, that the U.S. boosted the Nazis' uh, military infrastructure for a long time through corporations like Ford, and uh, then uh, conducted a really uh, cynical uh, Lend-Lease program with Britain in order come out of the war as the greatest military and economic power, that the destruction of uh, Europe was, in fact, profitable to U.S. corporations. And it's so easy to see once we just do a little bit of research, whether it's Dresden, the firebombing of Japan, too. And just the facts on the ground in 1945 at the end of the war are so critical because, in fact, the Soviet Union was marching on Japan when those bombs were dropped. And the bombs are really... Uh, supposed to be a, a, a means of intimidation to the Soviet Union that um, the United States knew that the war was over. Japan had been bombed to smithereens, that the, 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 the emperor had given up and that there were already backdoor talks about that. But the bombings, the two uh, atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were all about showing the Soviet Union that the U.S.'s military power, especially by air, was what was going to contain the next big threat, the actual threat that capitalists had been uh, going absolutely mad over already for uh, the last almost 30 years, which was the rise of the Soviet Union and the rise of socialism and the counterweight to capitalism, because fascism wasn't the counterweight to capitalism. Fascism was at once a convenient ally and then a very inconvenient um development which had to be contained, but the U.S. had no interest in stopping it. The U.S. would have been glad if uh, it could have stayed out of the war in order, f and Germany was powerful enough to take down the Soviet Union, because that was what the ruling class and Time Magazine and many periodicals, that's what they were talking about all the way up until 41. You have a whole chapter in your book about America's economic decline, a rising tide or a sinking ship. And, and this whole conversation makes me think about where we are today with the emergence of, you know, socialism not being a negative word anymore or having this negative connotation and just the roots of anti-communism. Because I feel like this is the last layer you peel off. I mean, of course, you meet people now and it's completely different because of Bernie Sanders re-injecting this in the lexicon. But 10 years ago, it was it was pretty taboo. And, and I just wanted you to comment on just that foundational myth, because I feel like that underpins everything. Because, of course, being the capitalist hegemon based on the exploitation and of millions of people of color and, and slavery and all of this other stuff, I mean, I feel like anti-communism really drives everything. And that's why, I guess, they're so scared of these resurgent movements. Yes, and... It is totally related to what we were just talking about, too, because when the U.S. became the imperial superpower, it used anti-communist sentiment to um, not only maintain its military dominance around the world and to intimidate the Soviet Union and China and whatever socialist country would emerge from the uh, struggles for national liberation abroad, but also that the U.S. has always been a project not of freedom and strivings for democracy and liberty, but really of social control and 
the managing of very unique, right? The United States does have unique parts. I don't know if we can call them uh, an aspects to it. I don't know if we can call it exceptional, but we can say that it's very unique in the sense that the U.S. emerged not as a um, not out of some feudal past, but really out of a capitalist and colonial system where race, race, white supremacy, really was foundational to the formation of the state, right? So there have been plenty of countries uh, and empires before it which used white supremacy and colonialism, but the formation of the state was not necessarily rooted in that. And uh, what that meant was that the U.S. ruling class was always in need of a particular uh, mode of social control whether it's white supremacy and anti-communism is t very connected to white supremacy um, in order to maintain its class system. And so when we have a situation in the United States where the capitalist is declining, its global share of the total economy is shrinking, the conditions of working people across the board, especially black people, have been on a precipitous decline over the last four decades where uh, not only are costs rising, but debt has become such an important tool for the banks in order to maintain this illusion of endless profits and this illusion of growing profits. Really, debt is what's subsidizing uh, the U.S. capitalist system at this point, and it's a very delicate situation. So uh, the myth of the American dream, this idea that the Americanization of the world is in fact the ideal situation where prosperity is shared by all has been totally burst asunder at this point. And that's why we see the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. However, I think the reason why the Bernie Sanders phenomenon has taken a democratic socialist character, a character where uh, it's really focused on a lot of the domestic uh, manifestations of this capitalist crisis, and that there are a lot of contradictions in the foreign policy realm when we talk about how let's say, uh, Bernie Sanders views Venezuela, for example, is because the stranglehold of this uh, idea of American exceptionalism still reigns true today, that we have, a, we have trouble building solidarity with peoples abroad because anti-communism in Bernie Sanders and, um, you know, everyone in the United States, every progressive, every leftist grows up in this environment of anti-communism that... Uh, we end up ingesting a lot of the narratives and the lies told about, and, and purely, honestly, racist lies told about uh, countries like Venezuela or like Cuba or like China or um, the DPRK, that these countries are seen as animalistic and savage and undemocratic, authoritarian, whatever the uh, watchword of the day is, these countries are not the example of socialism we're supposed to follow. We're supposed to follow a more American version that keeps the um, institutions of the state the same, but just reforms them so they work better for us. When in fact, what we've seen over the course of history is that in order for institutions to really work for us, we have to have power over them. And the most successful revolutions, the most successful movements around the world have done so on the basis of the ideology of communism and socialism, that these two ideologies were really not seeking just to reform a state which was under the control of capitalists and, and capital, but understanding that the profit motive itself um, had to be abolished in, in order to meet some of the, the needs that uh, people, and especially working class people, are 
uh, deprived of, whether that's housing, education, healthcare, and the right to determine the destiny of um, a nation. And I think because the definition of nation in the United States is rooted in empire and it's rooted in um, the maximization of profits for the few on the basis of uh, white superiority, we have trouble shaking off the anti-communism. We have trouble uh, not agreeing with Bernie Sanders when he calls Maduro a tyrant or Hugo Chavez a dead communist dictator. Or we have trouble when AOC gets caught up uh, with this right-wing uh, narrative about China and the NBA. We have trouble seeing through that. And I think our book will helpfully uh, provide a necessary intervention to uh, begin to have debates about this. I'm not seeking condemnation of anybody um, on our side, uh, among our class, among people who are struggling in the United States, and even the leaders that they hold up, like Bernie Sanders. What I hope this book fosters is a debate about uh, how we move forward now that we do have this re-emerged conversation about socialism and uh, the uh, fact that capitalism is not sanctimonious. It's not something to defend. It's actually inherently unjust. Now that this is happening again and that racism has been put um, on trial, now we can begin to talk on a mass basis about, well, what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that we identify these problems, yet they seem to be getting graver because, well, in fact, we don't have the power to change them. Quick comment before my brother asks about Russiagate, but um, yeah, I mean, this is this is really appropriate about the kind of social developments uh, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter that you talk about in your book, even like the adoption of the word socialism as a favorable term and concept in recent years are all indicative of this groundswell of opposition to the system that promotes American exceptionalism and innocence. But Again, there's this huge disconnect, right, between our foreign policy, U.S. imperialism and domestic movements at home. I mean, it seemed like this was more directly connected during Vietnam, but I couldn't agree more that we need to really um, start addressing why we don't have nice things here at home, like why we can't like foster and harness this energy if we're not actually analyzing um, our foreign policy in a correct way. And 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 I feel like that's a, a really, really huge problem. But I know that we, we don't have much time left. So Robbie, I know that you wanted to get your question in. One of the, the big game changers here um, that definitely plays into the theme of your book is basically the net result of all this hysteria over Russia in the last few years. And there have been several manifestations of it. I mean, in one way, we've had Russiagate, um, which is sort of centered all around Trump and his cabinet and also all these sort of satellite issues like, you know, the Russians allegedly hacking the DNC and all this stuff. But then you have sort of this larger issue of Russian disinformation. And that also ties into this idea of fake news. And, and just one example is this uh, think tank, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, that is not so uh, referenced anymore, but like a year ago, it was a very hot sort of DC think tank to reference that was sort of conflating this idea of all of these viral right wing talking points that would spread on Twitter. They were saying were coming from Russian bots. So it was sort of like they were trying to kill two birds with one stone. They were trying to combat this idea of what they you know were threatened by as like this right wing fake news racket and Russian disinformation. And they were trying to act like it was both the same thing. And I found that really interesting because, 
in a way to me that sort of revealed sort of the actual motives behind what they're trying to do, which is to censor any form of dissent. And I'm not saying the right wing stuff is actually like threatening dissent. But what I am saying is that I think that the, the, what we've seen with social media appears to be an attempt to just censor and shadow ban or remove things like, you know, Venezuela analysis, for example. So while we're all distracted by Alex Jones and RT being in the headlines as things that Facebook and Google are trying to derank, what really happens in the background that people don't notice is websites like Venezuela Analysis and other much smaller independent journalists, leftists, uh, police watching organizations get shut down and nobody notices that. What do you think now about how all these social media giants are sort of being looked at as part of the solution to fight so-called fake news and Russian disinformation? Well, I, I can say uh, that Russiagate is perhaps one of the most infuriating developments in human history, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, at this point, uh, I can't I, I, I'm sure that millions of people agree with me in the United States. But what is? What is really striking, and I think you're exactly correct, um, is that this whole Russia disinformation, this whole uh, idea peddled by the intelligence apparatus, is really a, in a, a policy that seeks to target people like us, people on the left. And I think the right has been used as a proxy in this way because there has been this because the Republican Party kind of lost its way and, and disintegrated into pieces and the Trump phenomenon left a lot of those, especially white racist elements in U.S. society without much to do or much to follow in the mainstream sense that they're kind of on the fringe now, a lot of these folks. And so they've been used as a proxy for institutions like NATO with their Atlantic Council uh, 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 NGO uh, to promote and really go on an assault uh, on the left. Uh, really, it's, to me, so infuriating because um, what we see is that uh, Black Agenda Report, for example, which I write for, we've seen our traffic um, be reduced by algorithm changes that uh, have uh, made it harder for Black Agenda Report to be seen by new readers. And... Uh, it, it's this policy. Wait, uh, this just let me stop you there for a second, Danny. When you say algorithm changes, have you guys actually noticed a decrease in like your traffic going to your website since this shit all started? Yes. So the late Bruce Dixon, uh, I believe in 2016, found that there was a 40% reduction in new traffic um, to the Black Agenda Reports website. I don't know if we've run any wow. recent numbers, but it was... A real precipitous decline, especially after the so-called shady organization prop or not, which is almost 100 uh, percent surefire intelligence um, op uh, that after they labeled like a gender port, naked capitalism, counterpunch, et cetera, et cetera, leftists, as well as so-called alt-right um, organizations and, and news uh, outlets that we did see. It, and I still feel it to this day. I mean. Um, it is a lot harder to share work um, on social media, which criticizes uh, the U.S.'s the empire's uh, motives in Syria, its real motives, its objectives, that basically does anything to question. I mean, the Atlantic Council is taking off 
Facebook profiles that promote natural black hair. I mean, we're we're talking about a real. <laughs> this is a real wall-to-wall intelligence operation meant to repress the left, and we see that this Russia disinformation myth, really, because honestly, if uh, we were thinking and analyzing this more clearly, a lot of people would be thanking Russia for ex- uh, helping voices like ours uh, cover Occupy Wall Street or cover yeah. protest movements in the United States, right? That this, that the very fact that they're demonizing Russia through complete mythology, I mean, it took three years for Robert Mueller to, what, find absolutely nothing on collusion. And then we're supposed to be okay with social media corporations, these huge tech monopolies, um, in surveilling and defining what free speech is, what, what, what is hate speech? In their opinion, it's going to be anything that challenges their power. And I think when people, you know, when these social Democrats like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, as much as I uh, feel and agree with her uh, agenda for Medicare for all and, uh, you know, her pro-working class sentiments, it, we really have to question her when she begins to pressure Facebook to um be the arbiter of what is legitimate speech, what's legitimate news, what's legitimate analysis. Because as much as we may uh, despise Alec Jones and the right wing and, and racists online, there is no conversation in the halls of Washington, AOC and anyone else talking about how Venezuela analysis, Telesaur, Black Agenda Report, um, you know, uh, any any leftist publication has all we've all felt it we've all felt the extreme repression that has occurred because of this ongoing campaign to label us all russians and or dupes of russia and that we're all working for the kremlin in order to destabilize this the political situation in the united states as if the ruling class the 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 oligarchs that control the United States has been the actual force that's been destabilizing uh, <laughs> people's lives at home and abroad for centuries. Well put. Uh, yeah. Well put. Very. It's it's so unfortunate. I mean, what you're saying because these other these other bigger people that get you know banned like Alex Jones are just going to suck all the headlines up. And there's plenty of people out there who are so disdainful of him that it'll just be like, good, I'm glad he's banned. Um, and that's and that's a problem. It, it almost becomes like a proxy for everybody's sort of hatred while all the people who are actually doing good work on the left in independent media are just not being given the proper due. And And I don't think people realize how damaging this is and how the lack of traffic to a website is a, actually a really big deal. Like it really it does make a big difference. Um, and it is also like sort of psychologically deflating when you see these sort of traffic stats going down. I mean, in a really noticeable, obvious way. It's also sort of meant to, you know, make people want to give up as well. So I don't think people, sh- you know, should let that <laughs> intimidate them, even though it se- it does suck. I guess that my rant is over on that. Abby, do you want to yeah, close it out? Yeah, I, I wanted to try to... Maybe do maybe end with something a little bit more inspiring, but I agree with you, Robbie. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, the Empire Files has been affected by this too. Um, we're slapped with a lot, you know, the algorithm changed, and now it's it's much more difficult to find our work as well. 
Um, and we know that this has affected just, you know, uh, tons and tons of left-wing websites everywhere from Counterpunch to Mint Press. L- let's try to wrap it up on a positive note because we're in a period of time which is really interesting. Our current status in the world kind of shows that we're unique in our horribleness. I feel like American exceptionalism is waning, of course, which is why we're able to see this vacuum be filled by people who are ready to, you know, condemn capitalism to kind of build these social movements. Of course, we're lacking in the foreign policy front, but still it's something. It's something that's pretty inspiring to me. Given our current status in the world in terms of education, healthcare, homelessness, drug use, gun violence, uh, I think people, you know, in spades are realizing that we are not the most advanced and superior civilization. So, what is your comment on that kind of filling this vacuum, making people kind of realize the Democratic Party, you know, there's no savior 2020, even if Bernie Sanders does win, it's going to have to come from the masses mobilizing themselves, Danny. And also just on the front that my brother and you were just talking about, about history, you know, being written by the victors, of course, these tech monopolies are trying to curate our reality today. But with the advent still of media in people's hands more and more, do you think that the counter narratives will prevail to tell the true history of the United States um, as the world's biggest terrorist organization? I do. I'm actually very hopeful. As much as uh, Russiagate has been so deflating and honestly has had such an impact, I, I do think that there is, you know, I see the world in contradictions. I, I consider myself a Marxist. And and I do believe that these sharpening contradictions, which have turned into outright antagonisms at this point, we're seeing both sides uh, of the class struggle uh, really take shape and to really fortify and harden themselves for a real confrontation. And I think that's a real hopeful sign when we see so many millions of people, despite the the real monopoly that the corporate media has um, over the narrative of working class people. And despite the fact that the U.S. has uh, the most violent uh, military state and police state um, ever before seen in history, that there is this uh, new conversation about socialism happening and that there is a very real possibility that even if Bernie Sanders just makes it to the convention, that there will be a lot of lessons learned um, should the DNC decapitate his campaign for a second time in a row. And so I do see a lot of hope in that. I do see that there is a rise in the level of political consciousness, especially among younger working class people. Um, And the hope is that, and I write for Black Agenda Report, the hope is that uh, there is a resurgent black left that helps to and it what what it has done uh, throughout the course of U.S. history, which is to make the connections between the domestic struggle for socialism, for liberation, for a new uh, decolonized reality in America, with the liberation movements, with the countries that have won real victories over imperialism, that. That is what is the next step, I believe, in this struggle. And really, the world is moving in that direction. And that's another thing that we try to talk about, that the reason why the U.S. has become so violent militarily, the reason why it relies so much on its military state and its police state is because the fear of rebellion and the fear of real transformative change is 
a, a, a threat in the eyes of the ruling elite at this time, that they actually do believe that there is this sea change happening around the world. That's why Libya was invaded in 2011. That's why the DPRK is constantly under fire. That's why Russia and China, they're constantly trying to sow divisions with between the two and they're constantly trying to wage war against them proxy wars against them it's because there is this rising tide and movement away from u.s imperialism and we're seeing it now in latin america with chile the massive protests in ecuador against the traitorous moreno and now with the election of alberto fernandez and christina fernandez in uh, argentina we see that the left is certainly not dead the idea of socialism is certainly not dead it was declared dead after the fall of the Soviet Union, and now it's back again with a uh, real fire. And that should inspire people. And our book is really meant to be a, a death blow to this narrative of American exceptionalism, that the arbiters of it, the those who continue to promote it, are doing so desperately and are doing so, doing so in a way that's so loud and so delegitimizing that it opens up an opportunity for us to debunk those myths and then to build some real solidarity across the globe as well as um, within our own cities and our own states and our own communities to um, challenge the power of the elite and to uh, hopefully um, you know, tear down their system. Danny Haifung, the book is American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Thank you so much for your time. A really great conversation, Danny. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. And uh, I love the work that you do. And yeah, we will win. <laughs> Thanks, hasta, Danny. Yes, hasta Victoria. All right, man. Talk to you later. If you liked what you heard today and you've been enjoying Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. We have a new donation tier. If you donate $30 per month, you get access to Abby's documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, and my documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. Thanks for listening. <laughs>